Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to report to you that our Guatemalan mission team, as many of you probably already know, left yesterday, landed safely, and very soon we'll be worshiping in that church in San Juan that many of us have been in this morning. It's always so cool to me to worship here at home, at the home base, where at the same time people from Rosemont are somewhere else in the world worshiping and leading worship. So you continue to pray for that team all this week as they do ministry in that village. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and serve you. We're thankful for the opportunity to study your word. I pray you'd speak very clearly to us. Help us to understand the truth, Father, that you've shown us. Help us to take that truth and through the power of the Spirit to apply it to our lives and be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We are continuing our study this morning through the book of Genesis, a systematic study, chapter by chapter, understanding the truth of the Word of God and the last several weeks and the weeks to follow, focus on the story of Abraham. We've seen already very clearly God's calling in the life of Abraham. We've seen the promises of the Lord. He's been reminded over and over again. And last week we saw the beginning, and we're going to continue our study this morning, of a very interesting encounter. An encounter where the Bible tells us that three men come to Abraham and and we saw last week from our study that two of those men are angels. One of them is the Lord himself. They come to Abraham and they remind Abraham yet again of the promise. Now we kind of challenged ourselves last week to live our lives when we encountered the Lord as Abraham lived his life when he encountered the Lord. We saw that when Abraham recognized these men and recognized the Lord, the Bible tells us that he rushed to please them. He hurried around to prepare everything for these men. He had a, a willing heart. He desired to serve the Lord. And then we saw that he gave his best. And I challenged you last week, and frankly, I challenged myself, do I hurry to serve the Lord? Do you? Do I hurry to please the Lord? Do we set aside everything else in favor of Him? Do we have a willing heart? Do we give God our best, or do we give Him our our leftovers? Because the example we see from Abraham's life is he set everything else aside, desired in that moment at least with a willing heart to give the Lord all that he had. And then we're reminded of the promise. And there's kind of an interesting little twist to the story as the Lord reminds Abraham of the promise. And the Bible tells us that Sarah laughs. We see very clearly that the Lord wants to display His glory by doing the impossible. Remember, Sarah was very old. Abraham was almost 100. They were very well past child-rearing years. And yet the Lord says to them, in a year I'm going to come back. Abraham, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. And she laughs. Now we're reminded of the importance of seeking the Lord and hearing from the Lord, but we're challenged by the truth, do we trust the Lord? (laughs) Even when he says he wants to do amazing things by doing the impossible. 
So today we're going to continue our study in chapter 18 and we're going to see kind of this idea of closeness with God between Abraham. We're going to see this intimacy, this level of, of connection between Abraham and the Lord grow. These men have come, they have been fed, they've eaten. Now it's time for these three visitors to leave and we pick up our story in Genesis chapter 18 verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can look with us. If not, you can look on the screen. Genesis chapter 18 verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. Now, this is just a little bit of a clue. This is where we're going. It's always helpful for us to kind of understand where we're going to go in Scripture. God's got a plan for Sodom and Gomorrah we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. But when they get up, they already kind of show us, and we get a sense for the plan, they're going to look down towards Sodom. Something's going to happen there. And Abraham, walking along with them to see them on their way. Verse 17. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great... And their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now this is a picture over these verses and the next few we're going to study of the closeness and the intimacy and the relationship and the conversation between Abraham and God. And we're going to learn some things about our walk with the Lord. Here's truth number one. The closer we walk with God the clearer we see His plans. The closer we walk with God, the clearer we see our plans. As we deepen our faith, as we deepen our walk, as we deepen our study in the Word of God, as we deepen our prayer life, as we deepen our memorization of Scripture, as we deepen our service, our commitment to the Lord, our closeness to God grows, and the clearer we understand His plan for our life. Now, God gives us just a little bit of a hint of His plan here in verse 16. They finish eating. The Bible tells us these men get up to leave and they look down towards Sodom. Now here's the thing we understand because of our study through the Old Testament. And if you understand the New Testament, there's always this picture. There's always this understanding that God has a plan. God has a, a big picture plan, things he wants to accomplish. And then God has a plan for your life. And the neat thing about God's plan is that God's big picture plan can't be accomplished unless the people of God work and allow the Lord to use them. Did you understand? You, you may not know this, but God's ultimate plans for this earth are going to be carried out through the followers of Christ. Did you know that? We very simply are His hands and His feet. And so we see passages of Scripture that remind us of God's plan, such as Proverbs Chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Here's why we're created. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. 
Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The question is not if God has a plan. The question is, how are we going to be involved in that plan? See, I believe God's got an incredible plan for this body of believers, this local church. God wants to do great things through us, and he's already done amazing things through us. But the only way those things are going to be accomplished is if the individuals, the hands and feet of the Lord, those that are followers of Jesus Christ, deepen their faith and deepen their walk and deepen their understanding and deepen their prayer life and allow God to use them and allow God to work through them to establish his plans. That's his calling for you. God's not pleased with you when you just kind of sit and soak. Now that's part of it. We do need to understand and learn and gather the word and begin to apply it to our lives. But the Lord is pleased with us when we go and do his bidding. He calls us to great things. He calls us to his plan. And as we deepen our faith and our walk with him, the more we understand that plan, the clearer it becomes in our lives. Now there's this neat sort of thing happening in verse 19. The Lord kind of debates with himself. It's an interesting passage of scripture. And he says, should, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? Should, should, I, should I tell him my plans? And he ultimately decides to share his plan in verse 19. For I've chosen him, he says. There's this idea of intimacy and closeness. So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. See, we see, see this closeness between the Lord and Abraham. We see this deepening of the faith. We see this deepening of this walk. And God says, I've, I've got a plan for Abraham. I've had a plan since the beginning. I've reminded him time and time and time again of the plan. I'm reminding him of the plan again now. And now verse 19 is interesting. Let me bring it back up if you would for me, Kevin. The Lord says, I have chosen him. There's that idea of intimacy and closeness so that, you see that? God's got a plan for Abraham. God doesn't say, I just chose him and then just whatever. He just go do what he wants to do, right? God doesn't say, I'm going to bless him and then just allow him to make his own decisions. God says, I've chosen him so that, and he gives us kind of three things here. First of all, so he'll direct his children. Second, so he'll direct his household. By the way, men, women, moms, dads, grandma, granddad, your first mission field is the home. I think it's just very telling when the Lord says, listen, I've chosen this man. I'm going to do great things through him. I'm going to create nations through him. I'm going to bless those that bless him. By the way, Messiah will eventually come through the line of Abraham. But the first thing he's supposed to do is direct his children and his household. That's a challenge, isn't it? Of all the things the Lord's going to do through Abraham, of all the plans he has, the first thing is that he direct his children. The second thing, he would direct his household. And then he says the third thing is so that the Lord can bring about the promise in his life. God says, Abraham, I've got a plan for you. I've got a great plan for your family. I've got a great plan for your nations. I've got a great plan that Messiah would one day come through you. But it's only going to happen as you deepen your walk. It's going to happen as you deepen your faith. It's going to happen as you walk more and more closely to me. Here's something we need to understand about our faith. And I think too many people miss this. The farther away from the Lord we are, the more our thoughts focus on ourselves. Let me say that first part again. The farther away from the Lord we are, 
the more our thoughts focus on ourselves. But the closer we are to the Lord, the clearer we can see His ways. See, if, if you're just kind of out here doing what you want to do, unaware of what the Lord's doing, you, you, you have to be very careful because you're going to focus more and more on yourself, more and more on what you want, more and more on your plan, not the Lord's plan. But as we deepen our walk, as we deepen our faith, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we grow in our walk with the Lord, the clearer His path becomes. So the Lord clues Abraham in on what He's going to do. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous. Now, we're going to get there in a few Weeks, And we're going to walk through this passage of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But there's something going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry against them is so great. Sin is so grievous. The Lord says, I'm going to go down and see what they've done. It's as bad as the outcry that's reached me. If not, I will know. Now, the word outcry here is kind of interesting. Because it's used in other parts of Scripture. In fact, when it's used, the term that designates outcry is the scream of a person who suffers from a great injustice, violence, or foul play. And we see this in different parts of Scripture where someone, the Bible says, cries out to the Lord because of destruction or cries out to the Lord because of violence. And probably the, the greatest example, maybe the clearest example, the example we'll be most familiar with is in the book of Exodus. Now, when we get to the end of Genesis, we're going to understand it. It's neat to me as, as Genesis and Exodus tie together, and we'll get there later in our study in the book of Genesis. But Joseph, in the latter part of chapter 37, somewhere in there, is going to basically be sold into slavery. He's going to go to Egypt. It's through him being sold to slavery that all of the Israelites are going to end up in captivity in Egypt. So for 400 years, they're going to be under the control of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, during that long period, that's the 400 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and here's the phrase, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. In Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a great cry of oppression. There's a great cry of sin and suffering and crying out to the Lord. And God is going to see the sin of this city, and He's going to act. Now, here's a biblical truth. If you're taking notes, you ought to write this down. We're going to see this in the next couple of weeks very clearly. Number one, sinfulness always leads to God's judgment. Sinfulness always leads to God's judgment, but repentance always leads to Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I heard a pastor earlier this week, and he was speaking to a group of pastors. And he challenged us with this idea of preaching about the idea of sin more because it's become kind of the cool thing in our society not to talk a lot about sin. There are churches that don't want to talk about it. There are pastors that don't want to talk about it. There are Sunday school teachers and leaders and deacons that don't want to talk about it. But it's clearly in Scripture. (laughs) We see it over and over again. And I think it's a dangerous place in our world when we minimize the effects of sin in our life. Where we minimize the power and the judgment and the justice of the Lord. God is a loving God. And he's a forgiving God, but sinfulness always leads to judgment. Repentance always leads to Christ. And so at this point, because of this conversation, because of this, the, the deepening of the walk with the Lord, Abraham is going to understand a little bit more God's attitude towards sin. He's going to understand a little bit more God's plan for him personally, for the people of Israel eventually, and specifically for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now verse 22. Let's continue reading. 
So the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. It's interesting here because God, bring that back one more time if you would. God's going to give Abraham this chance now to have this one-on-one. The two men are going to leave. The angels are going to walk away. But Abraham remains standing before the Lord. At this point now, we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of get even, even closer. Now it's just God and Abraham together. Verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, now you need to pay close attention because there's a very interesting progression that's going to happen in these next few verses. Abraham speaking. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 26, then the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now pause there just for a second and think about the sinfulness of this city. This is a big city. Thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people at this point. And God says to Abraham, listen, if I can find 50 people, 50 righteous people in this city, then I'll spare it. Verse 27, Abraham spoke again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he says, this is the Lord, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke. This is Abraham. What if only 40 are found there? The Lord says, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Verse 30, then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found? He answered, I will not do it if I can find 30 there. Abraham said, now I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord. What if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Here's truth number two. The closer we walk with God, the more time we spend in persistent prayer. The closer we walk with God, the more time we spend in persistent prayer. Now, I just want to make a distinction here and make sure we're clear on this. This is a story of Abraham, who's a human being, speaking to, in the words of Scripture, another man. But we've seen in our study, this is not just a man. This is the Lord who appears as a man. So even though it's a conversation that's taking place between these two people, it's actually a conversation between Abraham and the Lord. And any time we're speaking to the Lord, it's prayer. It's different than the sort of prayer we're familiar with. It's different than the way we pray because we're not standing face to face with the Lord. But it's prayer nonetheless. And so the thing we begin to understand, maybe the most important thing we see in this passage of Scripture, in this kind of discussion, in this dialogue, is the persistence that Abraham uses in speaking to the Lord. Abraham says, well, Lord, what if you find 50 people? What if you find 40? What if you find 30? What if you find 20? What if you find 10 people? He just kind of whittles this number down. Lord, I'm going to be persistent in my prayer. I'm going to come to you over and over and over again with this request. And I just ask myself the question, how persistent are we in our prayers? I've heard stories over the years of people that have said to me, you know, I've been praying for this specific thing. Oftentimes it's for a loved one. Maybe you've done this. 
I've been praying for this person, some people would say, for years. I've been praying for my mom or for my dad for years. I've been praying for my husband or for my wife for years. I've been praying for my child for years. And I always marvel at, at, at the faith of those people to continue praying for that same thing. Even though the Lord hasn't answered the prayer they want, the way they, the Lord hasn't answered the prayer the way they've hoped it to be answered, and they continue to pray week after week and month after month and year after year, we, we see this idea of persistence in the lives of these believers. And I think as we, as we deepen our walk and we deepen our faith and we deepen our trust in the Lord, we spend more and more time in persistent prayer. But I want you to notice how Abraham appeals to the Lord. Look at verse 25 again. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? See, Abraham's appealing very simply to the Lord's righteousness. Lord, you are righteous and you are good. Are you really going to destroy righteous people with sinful people? Now, righteousness is one of these big words that maybe we're not clear on or we're not very familiar with. Let me just define it very simply for you. God's righteousness means that he will always act in accordance with what is right. And he himself is the final standard of what is right. Righteousness means the Lord is always going to do what's right. Now, here's what you need to understand about the heart of the Lord. The Lord is always interested in sparing the righteous. God's heart is always to save those that cry out to Him. God's heart is always to help those in need. So Abraham appeals to the righteousness of the Lord. Now let's kind of take that idea of God's righteousness and let's apply it to us just for a second. If righteousness means that we always do what is right, we could talk about the believer, the Christian, the human, and we could speak of our righteousness. If we're righteous... That means that we always do the right thing according to the standards of the Lord. We always do what is right according to the standards of the Lord. Now here's the problem with human righteousness. It's impossible for us to always do what's right, isn't it? And we, we are never going to be righteous on our own. Why? Because we're sinful. No human being other than Christ has ever lived a sinless life. But here's the beauty of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because Christ lived a sinless life, because He was, in fact, righteous, when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and the Lord looks upon us, He doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. Do you understand that? That's the beauty of salvation. So for those of you that struggle with the idea of never being good enough, you're right. Those of you that struggle with not being able to do the right things all the time, you're right. Those of you who are struggling with, I, I can never do enough things to please the Lord, you're right. You're never going to earn your salvation. You're never going to do enough. You're never going to say enough right things. The only way you're going to be looked upon as sinless and righteous is because of the righteousness and the blood of Christ placed upon you. So when the Lord looks at us, He doesn't see our sin in our lives. He sees instead the righteousness of Christ over us. That's the beauty of salvation. That's the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Now some of you have probably never accepted that righteousness. 
Some of you have probably never accepted that forgiveness. Some of you have probably never accepted that salvation. I just want to encourage you today. If you've never accepted the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and His righteousness, if you've never repented of your sins and and said, Lord, I need you, I need forgiveness, I need Christ in my life, I want to encourage you right now to accept Him as your Lord and Savior because without that, you're not guaranteed eternity. I think far too many people think if I just show up at church and say the right things and be kind to my friends and, and say the nice things in Sunday school and pray occasionally out loud, I'm good. You're not. not without the salvation and the righteousness of Christ that we can be saved and guaranteed eternity with the Lord in heaven. So we see in this text the idea of persistence. Now persistence is a word that really should characterize our walk with the Lord, isn't it? And if we were honest about our walk, we should say we are persistent in a lot of different ways. We should be persistent in Bible reading, shouldn't we? We should be persistent in Bible memorization, We should be persistent in service. We should be persistent in following the Lord. We should be persistent in giving ourselves to the Lord. On and on the list goes. And in this particular context, we see we should be persistent in prayer. Luke chapter 9, excuse me, Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, this is the Lord speaking, and we see this idea of persistence here. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. One writer explains it like this. Effective prayer is a matter of drawing near to God so we can pray with His heart. We are called throughout Scripture to persistent prayer. Here's the problem. Get ready, I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to me. We find far too many excuses why we don't pray, don't we? Now, you would probably never say this, but your actions in your life, and mine too, I'm I'm, I'm standing among you, would say something like this, I just can't find time to pray. Lord, have you seen my schedule? I mean, (laughs) have you you seen my to-do list, Lord? Up early to bed late. I got all this stuff at work. Then after that, I got practice with my kids. And after that, some family time. And we get squeezed dinner in there somewhere. And and then, of course, I got to watch a couple of shows, Lord, at night. And then by the time everything's said and done, then if there's a little time left over, Lord, then I'll give you time to pray. Now, if we were honest with each other, and I think we should be, when we think about the things of the Lord, it's not really about time, is it? It's about commitment. It's amazing to me, and again, I'm speaking as one of you. I'm not speaking as someone who's got this figured out. It's amazing to me. We can't find time to pray, but we have time to watch TV. I don't want, to, I don't want anybody to raise their hand, but I bet I'm not the only one that was awake at 12.35, 12.40 last night. I'm not saying why. Some of you may have been up studying or praying. Others may have been watching a football game. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with watching football. I love football. College football, I enjoy this. It's a time of year that I get excited about, I look forward to. Nothing wrong with that. But are we saying I've got time to, to watch these games and not pray? Can we really say that? Me and hunting season is in now, I believe. And can we say I've got time to hunt but not spend time with the Lord in prayer? Can we say we've got time to be on Facebook and, and not with the Lord? Oh, but I'm putting Bible verses on. Well, good. That's a good thing. 
But you need to spend time in prayer. I got time to talk on the phone. I got time to play around in my workshop. I got time to read. I got time to fish. The list goes on and on, right? We've got time to do all these things and we can't find time to pray. It's not about prayer, is it? It's about commitment. We've got time. We're just not doing it. D.A. Carson, who's a famous pastor, theologian, I enjoy him. He's a, kind of a, a favorite author of mine. Here's what he says. We have learned to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop evangelistic strategies, and administer discipleship programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. Huh. I think a lot of times we buy into the lies of the world that maybe prayer isn't as important as we think it is, but I want to kind of make a prediction to you. I think the Lord's done some amazing things in our church. And I think the best is yet to come. I think the Lord's going to continue to do amazing thing, things in our hearts and in our midst of this church. But here's my prediction. The level to which this church rises over the next decade will be in direct proportion to the private prayer life of our people. The level to which this church rises over the next decade will be in direct proportion to the private life of our people. If we want to continue to see the Lord work in our midst, He's going to do it on the backs of our prayer life. Do you understand that? If there's no private prayer going on in the hearts and minds of the local church here, then we're simply a shell. We look good on the outside, but there's no substance. There's no strength. There's no foundation. We need to understand as we deepen our walk, the closer we get to the Lord, the more important persistent prayer becomes to us. Now verse 32 as we wind this thing down. Then he said, this is Abraham the final time, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. (laughs) What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of ten I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned Home. Here's truth number three. The closer we walk with God, the more we understand the power of prayer. The more we walk with God, the more we understand the power of prayer. There's a great mystery related to prayer. I want you to kind of think through this with me just for a moment. The Bible tells us over and over again that the Lord already knows what we're going to ask. Can you imagine that? The Lord already knows what we're going to ask in prayer. And so we've got this kind of strange dynamic that we have to kind of think through a little bit. We understand that God already knows, that God is sovereign, that God is complete control of all things, and yet we see time and time again in Scripture and in our own lives that prayer actually works. So how do we justify this interesting dynamic between the Lord being in control and already knowing and prayer actually working and we come to this point point? maybe we ask this question, maybe God changes His mind. Is that possible? Is it possible that maybe God changes? Well, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture will answer that question, no. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, in fact, gives it to us very clearly. For I am the Lord, I do not change. 
See, God never actually changed. And, and here's kind of the misnomer of prayer. I want you to understand this. Prayer is not about changing God's mind. Prayer is really about our relationship and our walk with Him. You understand that? We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray to deepen our walk with Him. We pray to deepen our faith in Him. We pray to deepen our trust in Him. When we come to God, it shows that we trust Him and it displays our faith. If you've ever had young children, you'll you'll understand that that for a parent with a young child, the relationship with that child is one of the most important and, and, and sweetest things you can experience in life. My children are getting a little bit older, but when they were younger, I can remember them coming to me and usually when they were pretty small, I already knew what they were going to ask before they ever came. You're kind of watching them play, you're watching their reactions, you're watching what they're doing, and you know as they come to you, you know what they're about to ask. It didn't have anything really to do with what they were about to ask. It was the fact that they loved me enough to come. It was about that relationship. It was about that bond. And so we begin to see as we trust the Lord more, as we deepen our faith, we understand the power of prayer. And we know scripturally that God answers prayer. Psalms 107, verses 28 and 29. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And I know so many of us have done this. And He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. We see scripture after scripture after scripture that points to the power of prayer. And then we know it in our own lives, don't we? We know in our own walk through our experience that the Lord answers our prayers. You know how the Lord sometimes blesses you when you're not really expecting it? You ever had that happen? I was in my study this week and I was working on my sermon and and my study isn't quite as organized as I would like it to be. So I've got a lot of books But they're not always in the order I want them to be in. And so some of my week becomes me standing at the shelf, literally looking. I have to turn my head sideways to see the volume. I knew I had a couple books on prayer. I was looking for them. And I couldn't find them. I wanted to pull some, some, some pages from these books that I was familiar with. And I couldn't find these books. And as I'm looking through these piles of books, I found an old notebook. And I thought, what is, I don't even remember this old book. And I opened it up and it was a prayer journal I'd done years ago. About three years worth of prayer. Not every single day, but a pretty consistent, this is what I'm praying for. And and I'd written these prayers down. And as I kind of got a little farther along in the thing, I'm just kind of flipping through reading and remembering dates and remembering stories. I begin to notice that beside these prayers were little check marks and a date. And sometimes this cheesy little smiley face, right? (laughs) And what I began to notice as I I walked through that prayer journal is how the Lord had answered prayer after prayer after prayer, after prayer. And I wrote down, I I, I wrote it down. Here's a little quote. It's going to sound silly and so obvious, but it just spoke to my heart. March the 23rd of 2008, here's what I wrote. It becomes more and more obvious to me that when I ask God for specific things, He answers them. Praise His name. You know, it's silly sometimes that we don't allow Him to answer prayers because we're not persistent. It's silly sometimes that we don't allow Him to answer prayers because we don't believe in the power of prayer. It's silly sometimes that we don't allow Him to answer prayers because we're too busy to pray. And yet we're told over and over and over again that we should pray continually. Some of you will recognize the name George Mueller. And I've spoken of him before, but the story is so incredible, I think it bears repeating. 
Mueller was born in the, in the early 1800s, and when he was about 28 years old, he founded, listen to this name, the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. That's, that's kind of a long, complicated name. And that institute did a lot of things, but one of the things he focused on was orphan ministry. And it's estimated that over the course of his life, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. He started approximately 117 schools which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children. Over the course of many decades, his ministry brought in millions and millions and millions of dollars. You can imagine all the resources necessary to care for 10,000 orphans, to care for 117 schools, to educate 120,000 children. You can imagine the resources necessary. But here's the most amazing thing about his story, and here's the reason I tell it to you. George Mueller never asked one single person for a penny. You say, did he write letters? Did he have some sort of a committee that went and raised money? Did he, what, what, what did he do? He had a, a real simple and kind of a silly little strategy that he employed. How naive of him. He simply prayed. Lord, I don't need to ask anybody for money. I just need to ask you. I don't need to trust anybody else. I just need to trust you. And I want you to listen to his own words. I think I've got the quote on the screen. If we can pull that up. Here's what George Mueller said. He said, And here I do desire, in the deep consciousness of my natural helplessness and dependence upon the Lord, to confess that through the grace of God my soul has been in peace. Though day after day we've had to wait for our daily provisions upon the Lord, yea, though even from meal to meal we have been required to do this, in the greatest difficulties, in the heaviest trials, in the deepest poverty and necessities, He has never failed me. But because I was enabled by His grace to trust Him, He has always appeared for my help. I delight in speaking well of His name. What a concept. I'm going to simply pray to the Lord and I'm going to trust that He's going to work. I just wonder what this world, what... This church, what your family, what your life would look like if we committed ourselves to prayer. I believe if that were the case, the world has never known the revival that would take place if we committed ourselves to prayer. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the reminder of the importance of walking with you daily, of drawing near to you, Father, of understanding the plans that you've given us, of understanding the the calling in your life, in our lives, Father, that you've shown us. We understand the importance of persistent prayer. And then, Father, as we deepen our walk, we begin to see the power of prayer. We begin to see that it does actually work. That through some miracle, through some mystery, Father, Father, our our prayers make a difference. So I pray you would encourage us to pray more. To pray with persistence and passion, understanding that what we pray, Father, goes directly to you. And you hear our cries and you answer. And then, Father, I pray that when we do that, you would use us to accomplish great things for your honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the chance for the next couple of minutes. The altar is, of course, always open. Maybe you need to be a little more persistent in what you're praying. Maybe the Lord's laid something on your heart to pray this morning. Maybe you've never accepted the righteousness and the forgiveness and the salvation of Jesus Christ. We can help you with that this morning. Maybe you want to join the church, but this is your time. You respond as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.